Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. On some level, people recognize the importance of being fair. We know that our laws should treat people equally, and we understand that no one should take more than their fair share from anyone else. From the moment we step on the playground as kids until the day we calculate our retirement pay, we live and operate in a world that frames equality in terms of reciprocity. But what if equality could not be achieved by fairness? Worse, what if true equality meant cheating everyone? Would we still demand equality? Fortunately, it's not what we demand, but what St. Paul commands that truly counts. Richard and I discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 133 of the Bible as Literature podcast. A neoliberal grocery store is where someone takes the progressive ideal of fairness and tries to make it profitable. So they sell you packages of popsicles and even numbers with a uniform distribution of colors. Why? So that when mom opens the package, she can be fair. This was the world of the 70s and the 80s. This desire to be fair, this desire to protect everyone's ego, to make sure everyone is treated the same, is destructive and harmful when you are in a position of authority unto instruction. When you look and see what children are like when they're raised around the idea that life is supposed to be fair. This is where the victim mentality begins because the assumption is that life constantly needs to be monitored for fairness and it goes against the idea that there is a greater structure in place put there by the parents or by God himself where things are not fair according to those at our level but at a higher level. This is the beginnings of the eternity that is in man's heart, but the inability to grasp it. The teaching of Jesus Christ, the preaching of the cross in 1 Corinthians and now in 2 Corinthians, is clear that the will of God for Jesus Christ was unfairness, and that the will of God necessitates unfairness at the expense of the baptized. But it's not even unfairness. Even that language is incorrect. Scripture doesn't say, yeah, I know it's not fair, but you have to be crucified. Scripture assigns shame to Jesus Christ, irrespective of guilt. And it assigns shame to its addressees, irrespective of guilt or innocence or achievement or otherwise. Shame and judgment. There's no shame and judgment in making sure that everyone gets a red popsicle. And until... A teacher understands that shame and judgment are functional. 
it's not just about your evaluation, or I would go so far as to say your evaluation of your student's behavior is secondary to the criticality of universal shame. You should always remind your child that other children behave better. You should always remind your child that other children suffer more than they do. It's a good habit to be in. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here in the beginning of chapter 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Imagine if you're going to St. Paul to complain and to whine, and he changes the subject to talk about how great that other church is and how much that other church has suffered. And how, in spite of their suffering, they're so liberal and so giving and so generous. And that in spite of deep poverty, they were liberal with their wealth to the extent that they looked like they were rich. They were so generous in the way that they gave to others. And this is a way of undermining any idea that the Corinthians might have that, oh, I don't know if we have enough. Oh, I think we've given enough. Paul, why do you keep asking us to give more? It's not fair. It's not fair. Why should we have to give so much? Oh, yeah, no, actually, it's not fair. The Macedonians, they're giving way more than you. Now, I challenge anyone listening to the podcast, think of the group that you're a part of, a church, a political party or ideology, and imagine your leader standing up to talk about how great the other churches are or the other groups are. It's a non-functional way of speaking if your interest is selfish. That's the radicality of the opening part of chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. Yeah, the other group shows the kind of zeal that I would expect from you. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor, and here a better translation that would be consistent, urging for the grace of participation in the support of the saints, and this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And why do I insist on translating charis as grace and not as favor? Not because favor is a bad translation, but because consistency is of the essence with a word like charis. Because the will of God and God's grace go hand in hand. To accept God's grace is to accept that maybe you get a red popsicle and maybe you don't. And they not only gave, but they begged for the grace to give. There's a beautiful Jewish prayer when there's no other prayer you can say. You can always thank God for the ability to carry out his commandments. They're begging Paul for the ability to be charitable, to give no matter what their state of poverty. And what Paul is teaching here is you don't have the right to feel sorry for yourself, that you don't have enough. So much of the rhetoric we're hearing in this country today is things are going badly, we don't have enough, other people are getting more than us, this isn't fair, we aren't getting what we deserve, we aren't getting what we were promised, whatever they want to say. But what he's saying is, well, look at Macedonia. They're begging to give more. You guys are complaining you're not getting enough. They're complaining that they don't get to give enough. 
Why would you be like this? They first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. They wanted to do the will of God. They wanted to fulfill God's commandment and they were begging for the ability. Paul did not impose this on them. Paul's telling the Corinthians, you should be giving more. This is the correct attitude of the Christian. The Christian who says he doesn't have enough. The Christian who says, I need more or that they're getting more or why do they get benefits and I don't get benefits is not acting like the Macedonians that Paul is using against the Corinthians. People think Paul is talking about the church and how the church functions in his letters. No, he's showing how the church dysfunctions. Corinth does not function. Macedonia functions. Interestingly, we don't have a letter to the Macedonians. Right. (laughs) Macedonians doing fine. They just get mentioned because everything's working fine. If there is a letter... There's a problem. There's a letter. There's a problem. And if, guess what? You're reading that letter to your parish, to your church, to your assembly. Your church isn't right. Your church, if there's anything they have to learn from that, it's because they mess things up bad. Because that's why Paul writes is because you messed up bad. And here, how did you mess up? You are self-righteous. And you're counting how many popsicles the other people have. Well, no, but you don't understand. You understand. We're a Bible-based church. Okay, if you're a Bible-based church, then according to the Bible, you're the problem. You're the problem, precisely. <laughs> if you're, I don't know if Macedonia was Bible-based, but I know they're doing the right thing. Let me figure out this puzzle. You're saying that we have to listen to the Bible, but once we listen to the Bible, we're the problem? That is exactly what I'm saying. And if you don't get the message... It's because you're self-righteous, because you still believe that there's a way to be right. When I get up to preach and everyone is condemned by the reading, you know and I know that it's not true that everyone is wicked all the time, but according to scripture, everyone is wicked all the time. The point is not that the Macedonians were right. The point is that Paul is inflating hyperbolically the grace and beauty of the Macedonians to put to shame the church that he's speaking to. Whether Macedonia is right or not, they're more right than you, so keep your mouth shut. So you're looking at Macedonia and you're getting jealous. Well, how come they're so great? Paul really likes Macedonia. I don't think you would want to be a disciple in the Macedonian church. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. Remember last time we talked about Titus getting a pass from HR to clean house in Roman Corinth. That's what Paul is saying here. I sent Titus to clean the house, and I hope he's successful in his work. So, in the end, I'm sure I'll have much more generous Corinthians than I've been confronted with up to this point. And how do you make a generous Corinthian? You buy a package of popsicles with six individually wrapped, uniformly colored treats and you invite six people to eat, and you only feed two. That's how people learn to be gracious. But as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. It is not enough. You have to act. You have to abound in this gracious work. You have to be doing it. You can't believe in charity. You have to give, as they say, until it hurts, and then beg to give more. Once you're doing that, then the knowledge that you're so big on 
actually mean something. You can't just talk, you gotta walk it. We know a lot about what they're talking about. I need Titus there to make sure that they're performing the correct actions. And I would really like to see you be on the same page as Titus. That's what he's saying here. I'd like to see you do the same work that I'm sending Titus to do. That's my hope for you. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. In other words, I am shaming you with the Macedonians in the hope that instead of you getting jealous or disdainful, that it would produce in you the correct attitude so that you would be worthy of my boasting also. It's exactly what people talk against today in popular parenting blogs. You actually do have to make your kids feel the pressure of other people's deeds. You have to remind your children when they're fighting over something stupid that there were children standing in line at a checkpoint earlier today, that there were children walking to school under the shadow of snipers, that there were children who went to bed hungry, sleeping under a mosquito net in the middle of the wilderness. That's what you have to remind them of. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Here we go so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is the ultimate expression of biblical shame, that the one who was mighty, the one who was abounding in everything, became weak and became poor and was put to death shamefully before the whole world for your sake. So this is the teaching. Paul knows he taught them this. So the basis of all your talk and your trust and your knowledge is this. Now, will it produce correct actions? This is the only question on the exam that Paul is giving to the Corinthians. This is what happened to Jesus Christ for your sake, and you want me to be concerned about whether or not you got a popsicle too? Now, you might think listening to this podcast that, well, you're using a children's example about who gets a popsicle, but for heaven's sake, look at American politics today. All I see on all sides of the aisle is people whining about popsicles. It's ridiculous. I got a popsicle. They didn't get a popsicle. I need to make sure more people get popsicles. You know, What if so-and-so doesn't get a popsicle? Should we enact a law to make sure that people get more popsicles? I worked for my popsicle. How come they get a popsicle too? Blah, blah, blah. Whether you're a liberal or a conservative. Neither one speaks out of personally giving until they have nothing more to give and then beg for the ability to give more. Nobody talks this way. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago not only to do this, but to also desire to do it. So he saw the beginnings of the correct actions. The test is, will they continue to act the way they need to act? But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. So I don't want to just see that you really want to do it. Oh, I'd really love to do great on this test. Okay, we'll see how well you do on the test. Are you actually going to take the time to study like you need to? Are you going to perform on the test the way you need to if you want to get a good grade on the test? Are you going to finish what you started, and more importantly here within the context of 2 Corinthians, Are you going to feel ashamed 
that all these other people did what they did with what they had according to God's grace and according to God's commandment. And now you have this ability. Are you going to be put to shame enough to get off your rear end and make the most use of the ability God gave you? That is what he's saying here. He is whipping them because they have the ability and the capability. But because of their neuroses about fairness or their neuroses about Paul's failures, they're finding excuses and excuses in sin to sit on their rear end and not produce. Not to mention if we think back to the beginning of this letter and how Paul talks about how they even got this teaching because of all the suffering that Paul had to go through in order to deliver this teaching. You know, they have to remember the generosity of those who came before them, of those who are teaching them, of those around them, and they have to see this generosity as a bar that they're not able to reach. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. In other words, stop whining and start acting. Start producing. You look at the world today, it's easy to have a God complex and to become self-righteous and say to yourself, the world is so screwed up, why should I do anything? What difference will it make? To which the Bible responds, don't trouble yourself with things that are beyond your grasp, too great and too marvelous for your puny little perspective. Do what I ask. Preach, teach, serve, love, submit, irrespective of what you think the outcome will be, because the outcome, the fruit of the commandment, is not your purview, it is God's domain. One time I was speaking with a priest, why are we not giving more to charity? And the priest said, you know, we're really not ready yet. We need to make sure we have more members and we want to make sure that we finish with our new addition and maybe even get a second priest. Once we do that, then we'll be in better shape to give more to charity. What this is saying is today you have a duty to fulfill God's commandment. And in order to fulfill this teaching, you have to be more than generous today. You're not guaranteed multiple years to the point where you're going to be ready, so to speak, to do it. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. And I love this verse because now we're talking about the real meaning of equality scripturally. And the word in Greek is isotis, fairness, equality. What Paul means by equality is that if you demand it, there will be disparity. But if you are put to shame and you submit to the other, then there will be equality before God. What the liberals and the conservatives both fail to understand is that the enemy of community is this sense of being right. Liberals really believe that they are right in imposing their progressive morality, and conservatives really believe that they are right in imposing their rugged individualism. And the problem is not their ideas per se. The problem is this deep abiding belief that they are right, and that is what produces suffering and inequality. They can't wrap their heads around it. You can't achieve equality by way of ideology. You can only achieve equality before God by way of the cross and suffering and humiliation. They don't get it. And this is what Paul is driving towards here. You don't give to others because of the ease of others. This is how liberals talk, that you have to, you know, our job is to make sure other people have an easier life as we do. No, this is not it. 
oh, we need to afflict ourselves. Giving too much is an affliction. This is the conservative talk. Both the liberal and the conservative are stomped down in this. It's for the sake of equality. You give till there's nothing left to give, and then we know that everyone's going to be equal because everyone will have given everything they have to everyone else. And it's in the giving that people become equal, not in the receiving. Everyone will be equal because everyone will be subjugating themselves to other people. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need that there may be equality. So this is what equality means. You give everything you have to them and they give everything they have to you, then we'll be equal. You don't apportion a part of yours to give it so that they get a little bit higher. You give everything to them. And then when you're in need, they give everything to you. This is true equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. And of course, this plays out beautifully in the story of the loaves and the fishes in the Gospels. And this comes specifically from Exodus when God supplies the manna from heaven and everyone goes out and gathers it. And by a miracle, everyone just gets as much as they need. And nobody lacks and nobody has any extra. When God gives, it is so that everyone has precisely what they need. And out of gratitude towards God, we become abundantly generous, begging for the ability, begging for the grace to give more to our fellow humans. Now, read Exodus and read the Gospels. And you tell me, was it fair for God to provide manna in the wilderness? Was it fair for Jesus to provide food for the people? Was it fair? If nothing else, it's clear in Exodus that God had every right, every right, not to feed the people because of how they conducted themselves when he rescued them from the bondage of Pharaoh. At the same time in the Gospels, knowing the fate of Jesus Christ, how did that turn out after he was so generous? How did the people treat him? He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.